Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Kate Jessica Raphael, whose latest novel is Murder Under the Fig Tree, a Palestine Mystery, earlier book, Murder Under the Bridge. This is the second in a series featuring pair of detectives, one Palestinian, a real detective, and the other an American who come together and solve crimes in Palestine. And I guess, what is it, 2005? This one is set in early 2006. And the first was 2005. The first one was in late 2005. And you were in Israel-Palestine at that particular time? I was deported at the beginning of 05. So I wasn't thinking that clearly when I started this project. I was being very naive about the publishing process, and I kind of wanted people to know what it was like right then. So I set the book sort of right in the period when I was writing it, not thinking about the fact that I might want to do a series and that I wasn't going to be able to go back and that people anyway weren't going to be reading it for years. And so if I had been thinking clearly, I probably would have set the first one in 02 or 03 so that I could work my way forward to the last point at which I was actually there, which is especially important in Palestine because the geography has been changing constantly with the encroachment of the wall and settlements. Before we get on to some of the issues in the book, did that mean you had to do extra research on the period when you weren't there, or was it sufficiently close to what you'd been that you kind of went with it? With the first one, it was close enough to the time when I had actually been there. The second one, I knew pretty much what had changed. I checked a few details with people who had been there more recently. But with this third one, I'm definitely struggling with that because I know that certain things would have changed. And I've asked some people who were there at that time, but they don't remember exactly what was going on. And, you know, I think... September 2006 is when the next one is said, and I'll ask somebody, could you still go to Abu Disa legally? And they don't remember. Let's talk a little about Murder Under the Fig Tree. Now, when Murder Under the Bridge ended, Chloe had been sent out of Israel, and Rania, the detective, was still a detective. Why did you choose to open the book with Rania in prison? As I finish a project, I get this idea of how the next one's going to start. And I just always knew that the second one would start with Rania in prison, partly because the first one is left a little bit unresolved. There's a resolution, but it would not be in Palestine that the bad Israelis are all locked up or something. So realistically, they would still be looking to silence her. And Because of what had happened since the time when the first book was taking place, 
the government had changed. Hamas had taken over the government. And one of the things that happened was that the Israelis went around locking up people that they thought of as threats. And so I just felt like that would be a good way to, one, dramatize the situation, two, Something would have to be pretty dramatic to get Chloe to try to go back to Israel after being kicked out. So I felt like she needed that kind of a reason. And I just felt that it would be a good dramatic way to start a story. Well, it also has another element, which is that you're able to tell what it's like to be a Palestinian in an Israeli prison. Did you do research on that? I did not do very much. Part of it was that I've been a prisoner in this country some, not that much, but I've spent weeks in U.S. jails, and so that experience translated pretty well. Then I had been in an Israeli jail, although it was an immigration prison, which is very different from the facilities that Palestinians are in. And I had visited people in prison, Palestinians in prison, so... I was able to extrapolate from those experiences. I wasn't really sure I'd gotten it right, but then a movie recently came out that's about a woman who's in prison during the first intifada. I saw it and I thought, oh, yeah, I really did get it pretty right. And a number of people have commented about that who saw the film. So you have her in prison and then you've got to figure out a way to sneak Chloe back. Was it easy for people who had been kicked out to get back in? Because it seemed pretty easy for her. I went back after having had the same experience that she had, having been kicked out but leaving on my own, not having my passport stamped, deported, and then I was able to get back in. So it certainly could happen. It was easier at that time than it is now. Their computer system was not as good as it is now. I just heard from somebody who had, I think, been denied entry in the past that he was able to go back. He said what he told me is that there's a list of people who, like a watch list, and that people get taken on and off it, that they review it periodically, and that if they want to keep you on it, they have to make a specific decision to put you back on it. And so he was suggesting that even I, who was deported, might be able to go back. So the fact that she got in, she's kind of surprised, but she gets back in actually is exactly what could have happened. Yeah, it could definitely happen. The focus of the book, putting aside the politics, which of course is one of the reasons you've written the book to begin with, but putting aside from that, you focus in on the lesbian gay community in Palestine, Israel. There's a club that has Palestinians who snuck across the border and party in Israel, does that club or a club like it exist? A club used to exist. It was called Shushan. It was on Shushan Street in Jerusalem, and which is in West Jerusalem, but just on the border of East Jerusalem. And people who know the Purim story will recognize that the club in my book is called Adlo Yada. Shushan and Adlo Yada both feature in the Purim story, so I sort of played off of that. It's no longer open. It was owned by a gay Jewish Israeli who was on the Jerusalem City Council and was 
pretty much of a leftist, I think. He came under a lot of attack, mostly from the religious right, for being openly gay and running this club, and eventually it closed. But there are some places, there are still some clubs where Palestinians and Israelis socialize together in Jerusalem, although now there are a few in Ramallah, which didn't exist at that time, that have sort of underground gay scenes. Do sites like Grinder exist over there? I am sure that there are online dating sites at this point. I don't know if they're like Grinder. I haven't done research on that, but I mean, basically, the internet is very much a factor in the emergence of the Palestinian queer scene. So the internet is there on the Palestinian side as well as the Israeli side? Yeah, for sure. And have you checked out the uh, communication between the two sides just generally? I mean, just as part of your work as an activist. There are two LGBT organizations in Palestine, Aswat, which is a lesbian group, or they call themselves a gay women's group, and Al-Khaus, which is for sexual diversity in Palestine, which is multi-gender and very inclusive. They have traveled here. We've hosted them a few times, and they've talked about what the scene is like. You know, they do collaborate with Israeli organizations at times, although definitely being independents and not doing normalization, like they're part of the BDS movement, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions movement, they're signatories to the call. And so they're very cognizant of not participating in activities which would be perceived as normalization or trying to say, oh, all we need is coexistence. You know, Coexistence, not in the sense of equal partners, which of course is what we all want, but coexistence in the sense of we just need to accept the status quo and everybody get along. There's also a lesbian support group. Did that exist at the time? Yeah, it was just starting. I mean, that was part of Aswat's mission. Aswat kind of started as a social group and became more of a political and educational project. Uh, one of the characters sneaks through the wall, the um, the fence, to get over to the gay bar. Did that happen? Yeah. I mean, I saw that in a movie about Shushan and about Jerusalem in general. The person who tells that particular story is a little bit suspect. Some of the things that he later said about his life didn't turn out to be true. But for sure, I knew people who did that. When you went to that bar, you saw Palestinians and Israelis hanging out together. Was it like walking into some kind of nice future? How did that feel? Or were they separate? Definitely people socialized together, and they were also separate. You know, there would be tables of all Palestinians and there would be couples, there would be mixed couples and same racial or ethnic culture couples. You know, pretty much it was a no questions asked kind of a space. You know, there were definitely Israelis who would go there because they wanted to meet Palestinians. I think there were some Palestinians who might have wanted to meet Israelis and probably more who just wanted a safe and comfortable place to be for a while. Well, it sounds as if the Palestinian side of it was far more closeted than the Israeli side. 
yeah, definitely. I think that was true that, you know, there's been a gay scene in Israel for longer. There are more people who don't come from religious backgrounds. I mean, Palestinian society in general is more religious, where Israeli society is mostly secular. You know, but there are secular Palestinians and there are very fundamentalist Israelis. So, I mean, I certainly knew Israelis who went to that club who were from very religious families that would have kicked them out or possibly worse if they knew that they were going there. So they were certainly closeted there. But the thing is that when Palestinians are going to Jerusalem, if they don't have Jerusalem ID or Israeli ID, then they're there illegally. So they're closeted on two levels, right? Like they can't have anyone that knows their family see them going into a gay bar, but they also can't have the Israeli army or the police see them being in Jerusalem, which is more likely to happen, you know, because they really stand out and there are people who are looking for that. And so, you know, that makes it doubly dangerous for them. Today, we have something which is called pinkwashing, which is the Israelis show how open they are by talking about our gays, basically. Was that evident back 12 years ago? Yeah, it was starting. So, yeah, I mean, I was really cognizant of wanting to write something that told the truth or a version of the truth, but didn't play into this idea that Israel is this haven for Arabs fleeing their conservative community, because among other things, it's just not true. I mean, although people do go into Israel looking for places that they can be, every single Palestinian who's applied for asylum in Israel has been denied. So being gay doesn't help you if you're Palestinian. Kate Jessica Raphael, you also bring up the idea that just as we have in America, Black Lives Matter, because too many people in the establishment, particularly police, pretty much say black lives don't matter. It sounds that in Israel then, probably now as well, Arab lives didn't matter. There's a couple things going on. While I was in Palestine, I investigated in a very loose sense, and then I'm not an investigator, but you know, as a human rights observer, I collected information about many killings, but almost none of them were mysteries. Oh, surprise, the army did it. Every now and then someone might be killed in a fight or because they were suspected of being a collaborator, but even then it generally wasn't a mystery. So as a mystery writer, I'm having to stretch the truth a bit. But inside Israel, if a soldier kills a Palestinian, it's presumed that the Palestinian was a terrorist. And I mean, it almost never happens that anyone is punished for that. And even, you know, with Americans, Rachel Corey, you know, her family sued the army and the soldier who ran over her with a bulldozer and they lost. I mean, that was deemed to be, you know, that the soldier was following protocol. So, yeah, Arab lives definitely do not matter in Israel. And even someone who committed cold-blooded murder and everyone knew it and was seen, I think he was sentenced to house arrest, like six months of house arrest. I mean, it's very blatant that Palestinian lives do not matter in Israel. So that, in a way, makes your job easier because you know that by putting the Palestinian Authority in charge, 
you can create a situation where the Israelis are going to ignore it, but the Palestinians won't, presumably. You know, it's a challenge, as I say, because in real life, maybe the situations that I'm creating wouldn't exist quite in the way that they do, or I have to come up with reasons why, for instance, the Israelis would care about this particular Palestinian you know, or why the Palestinians would not accept the obvious answer. The army must have done it, you know, and just sort of proclaim the person a martyr and move on. I mean, the other problem, though, is that I'm writing a mystery series. So, I mean, my first book, I would say, although I tried to definitely make it complex and have complex characters, Israeli characters, Palestinian characters, international characters, it's a little bit Manichaean in the sense of, you know, most of the really bad people are Israeli and most of the Palestinians are kind of good in some sense, although, you know, I tried to have some that my heroine, Rania, doesn't like, but they're basically good people. But if you're writing a mystery series, all the villains can't be Israeli. You can't hew strictly to the truth. So, for instance, a pet peeve of mine is how many women are the killer in mysteries that you read or see on TV. I mean, I think it's probably a majority at this point because people think, well, no one will suspect the woman. No one will suspect the woman because in point of fact, women are a very small percentage of people who kill in this country. So I didn't want to do that. But at the same time, it's a mystery. Like if you want to write a mystery, that's going to keep people reading and guessing. You can't have eliminated half of the suspects or three quarters of the suspects because it couldn't be a Palestinian and it couldn't be a woman from the jump. So, you know, I just want to tell people that anybody could have done the crime. One of the interesting elements of the book, which is something we don't really think about, is how many times people got caught in traffic jams trying to get from Palestine from the West Bank over to Israel and back and forth. It's a pain in the ass, and people have to do it all the time. Traffic jam is a little bit of a misnomer. There are, I'm sure, traffic jams that Israelis or settlers get caught in, but the people in my book are being caught by roadblocks and obstructions, checkpoints, mostly impromptu checkpoints which will spring up so that you never quite know whether you're going to easily be able to go somewhere or not. It's not quite like here where you know that if you want to get there quickly, try and avoid rush hour or, you know, look at 511 to find out if there's a overturned semi-truck on the road. It's much less predictable than that. And it's not at all random. I mean, Basically, the point is to keep Palestinians from being able to move freely, and they're not able to move freely. And at times, at least, there are hundreds of checkpoints throughout the West Bank. And that, of course, creates difficulty when someone needs to get to a hospital. So one of the subplots in this book is based on a story that a friend of mine was intimately involved in, which is that a Palestinian woman needs to go to an Israeli hospital to get cancer treatment. She lives in the West Bank, 
and she can get a permit to do that, but her husband can't get a permit to drive her because he's the wrong age and he's Palestinian and his record is not spotless enough to get him a permit to go back and forth. So in this case, they ask Chloe through Rania to accompany her. But a friend of mine, an Israeli friend, did that for several years. She drove a woman back and forth to treatment several times a week. What other little bits and pieces came out of your own work or just talking to people inside the book? Can you think of a couple of other ones? Most of it is related to my work on some level. So there's reference to the Prisoners Club, which when Rania's in prison, her husband gets this lawyer to represent her. She's in sort of administrative detention, which is basically detention without trial or even without charge. So the Prisoners Club is a you know, group of human rights lawyers who represent people in that situation. Well, they represent Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails in general. Chloe is frustrated that the lawyer doesn't seem to be doing that much. She calls an Israeli friend who sort of makes a few phone calls and then says, I mean, basically everyone's attitude is, well, she'll get out eventually. And for Chloe, I mean, this is the reason that she's come back is to get this person out of prison. And everybody's sort of taking it as like, well, this is life in Palestine that you know, people go to prison and sometimes for no good reason and you just have to file the papers and it takes time. And it seems to her that everyone's being very passive. But, you know, then at some point she's complaining that the lawyer doesn't seem to do much. And her friend says, well, he has a lot of cases, you know, and this is just another one where to her, this is the important one. And that was definitely something that I experienced. You know, if somebody was looking to me to get their loved one out of prison, I wanted everybody to drop everything. And I wasn't thinking about, you know, the 19,000 other Palestinians who might be in Israeli prison at any time. That means that you were able to draw these elements in your memory. I mean, there must be some that you haven't used yet that will come out of the third and fourth books. Well, the third book takes place much more in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. I mean, I sort of had a home away from home there. So I know Jerusalem fairly well. I I did spend a fair amount of time in Bethlehem, but I have to say that it's being difficult to remember. I mean, this was now like you say, you know, 13 years ago, and I'm not remembering it as well as I wish I did. So like now I am starting to think, well, maybe I should see if it's possible for me to go back because I'm not finding good enough information on Google Earth and whatever about what's where. But, you know, definitely I'll be drawing on some of what I know about those cities, which is a little different. I heard a story a friend of mine that I worked with was asked to help a woman get an abortion in Israel, a Palestinian woman get an abortion in Israel. And she went to get the permit, which was very easy. And as the soldier was handing her the permit, he said, does she need any money? And it turns out that the Israeli army has a fund for Palestinian abortions because it's a demographic war. And as soon as I heard that story, I thought, okay, my next mystery is going to have to incorporate that and look at that issue. And that is a bit of what's going on in my third book. Kate Jessica Raphael, 
one thing I've noticed in both of your books is that unless we see these movies, there's virtually very little in print about what it's like to actually live in the West Bank, either as an Arab or even as a visitor. I mean, are you shopping at outdoor markets as opposed to supermarkets? Is it so completely different and then inches away there's a Lucky's on the other side of a fence? You know, good question. I do want to say that there are some wonderful memoirs by Palestinians and some by internationals. I know Ben Ehrenreich's book, um, I think it's called The Way to the Spring, a number of friends who have read extensively say is the best thing they've read about Palestine. So although I haven't read it, I would recommend it. You know, I think Sandy Tolan's books are excellent. But things like that, like Where Do You Shop?, And I didn't know this when I went to Palestine. I mean, I wondered, are we going to have to milk our own goats to get milk? (laughs) You know, most villages, every village, as far as I know, unless it's really a hamlet, have stores. You walk in, it's kind of like shopping at a corner store. They might have mostly produce or they might have, you know, housewares or every other kind of thing. Supermarkets, I think, in the cities... I don't know about in somewhere like Nablus, but certainly in Ramallah, there are malls and supermarkets and big stores where you would shop. Pretty much every city has an old city that has a lot of stalls. They're not necessarily open air. I mean, they're enclosed, but have an old style market where you go stall to stall. And, you know, that's definitely the most fun way to shop. You don't bargain for food, I learned. You bargain for everything else, but food items, you just pay what they say unless you think that they're cheating you because you're a foreigner, in which case you make a decision about whether you're going to argue or not. What's the tipping like in restaurants in Palestine, do you remember? You know, they don't normally tip. Yeah, that was always a question. Like, I always wanted to tip, but then somebody said, no, it's rude. And what about English? Uh, I mean, Rania speaks English, and most of the characters in your book speak English, at least from our perspective, though there is some Hebrew spoken. Would it be more likely for a Palestinian to know English than Hebrew? Would it be more likely for an Israeli to know English? Yeah, all of it. A lot of Palestinian men know Hebrew, especially the older generation, people my age and older who have worked in Israel before the Oslo period, so before 93, many, many men, maybe a majority of men worked in Israel or worked for Israelis. They tend to know Hebrew. Also, anyone who's spent much time in prison seemed to learn Hebrew there. So, you know, it's kind of an irony that the ex-fighters have the best Hebrew because they spent the most time in prison and they learned their Hebrew there. But the women typically do not speak Hebrew at all, and if they do, they pretend that they don't, which is something that showed up in my first book. They just don't want to speak it, and they don't need to, so they don't, unless, again, unless they were in prison or had some reason to work in Israel. They study English from a very young age in Palestine. They start In the first grade, I think, at six years old, they start a little later in Israel. Inside Israel, though, there are many people who have a parent who might be American. They watch a lot of American TV, so they learn English that way. I mean, I have friends who have perfect English, but 
increasingly the younger generation is less comfortable in English or might not really speak it at all. And some choose not to speak it. You know, for some Israelis, being independent, not being seen as a, some kind of U.S. satellite is very important, and so they don't want to use English. Some speak Arabic, and comparatively, very few Israelis speak decent Arabic compared to the number of Palestinians who speak good Hebrew. More Palestinians certainly know Hebrew than English, but you can usually find an English speaker if you need to among Palestinians. Okay, Jessica Raphael, Trump has just declared that Jerusalem is the capital and wants to move the embassy there. What do you see happening based upon your own knowledge and research? Does this shift things over there as the mainstream media would have us believe? Or is it another situation where people are going, well, it's this whack job and we kind of need to step around it? I don't think there's a way to step around it. I mean, we might say that he doesn't represent the U.S. policy, but the fact is that he is. He's the chief executive. He makes decisions for this country. And so for the next three years, or I think very likely the next seven years, you know, he is the face of the United States and he sets policy. So I think we have to take it seriously. It's definitely an escalation. On the other hand, in some ways, it's simply an acknowledgement of what Palestinians have known for a long time, which is that the U.S. is not a neutral broker, that, you know, I think what it does is that it makes it very clear that the U.S. cannot claim to be a neutral arbiter in this situation and that they're not trying to promote a just peace for Palestinians, but they're trying to ram down the Palestinian Authority's throats any solution that the Israelis want. Like I say, Palestinians have known this, but it's been hard for the Palestinian Authority to act on that knowledge because they're sort of trapped in this ostensible agreement that was signed. You know, so it could be that this precipitates a change in Palestinian politics. I mean, one of the, the subtext of this book is a situation like that where the U.S. kind of pressured the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, to call elections at a time that was very volatile in Palestine because Yasser Arafat had recently died and he was wildly popular in Palestine and his successor Mahmoud Abbas wasn't. So the U.S. government thought that having legislative elections would sort of result in a mandate for Abbas's party and strengthen his position and therefore theirs in negotiating something that they could call peace. Instead, what happened was that Hamas out-organized the Fatah party and took over the government. And the U.S. and Israel went berserk, really, you know, went ballistic anyway in, you know, being furious that the Palestinians had the nerve to vote for candidates that they didn't like. And the Israelis went around arresting many, many people, including about a third of the Palestinian legislators were in prison at one time. So, you know, I think that what we will see is that this will embolden Israel in its repression of Palestinian dissent and its 
desire to take all of the land to expand settlements and sort of annex parts of Jerusalem, which is already happening, though. I mean, every single day, Israel is claiming more land in Jerusalem. So I think this will escalate it, but it's not a new situation. It could be that in the coming weeks or months that the U.S. will try to, that the Trump administration will try to walk back some of its, you know, it may be they won't move the embassy. They probably won't move the embassy, I would say, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem anytime soon. That threat will always be there. So I think we'll see what develops. But for sure, what it says to the world, I think, is that the U.S. cannot be left in charge of this situation any longer. Whether that will mean anything good for the Palestinians, I wish I could say that I thought it would. What it does do, though, is it clarifies. Right. Kate Jessica Raphael, you're also working at KPFA. What kind of projects are you working on uh, at the radio station? Well, one of the things I'm working on is an all-comedy New Year's show, New Year's Day show, um, with a bunch of funny women from a lot of different communities. I'm also working on a show about trans parenting transgender kids and some of the issues around transitioning as teenagers and how good of an idea is that? Um, what should your response be if you have a kid who is questioning their gender? I am hoping to do some shows about elections as resistance and sort of you know, is it a good idea for leftists to run for office, local offices, national offices? Of course, we're going to be tracking the whole sexual harassment, sexual assault, Me Too movement. We're recording this shortly after Al Franken has announced his resignation, and I've been very torn about this because I feel like we're focused right now on this one set of misdeeds of people in high places. But there are a lot of other terrible things that people in Congress have done that we're not talking about. So, you know, there are people who have been members of exclusive clubs. I'm sure there are Congress members who are slumlords. There are people who have underpaid or not paid their domestic workers. And we're not talking about that. So, you know, I want to try to think about ways to look at some of those issues as well. Your next book, do you have a title for it yet? Murder at the Roadblock is the current title. Although, you know, the first two were under, so I keep trying to think, is there something that I can have it be under? But I don't think so. I think it's going to be at the roadblock. It's dealing with Jerusalem, the issue of Jerusalem, a lot. So that's hopefully very timely, although, of course, when it comes out, we'll see if it's still timely. I have a feeling that it will be. <laughs> You're going to make Rania a full-fledged detective again? Yes. Rania in this book is a bit of a national heroine, so that's a little bit new territory for her, and I'm hoping that I can make that come alive. And she's definitely in good form in this book. And you're going to figure out a way to get Chloe there. Chloe's still in the country. She doesn't leave after Murder Under the Fig Tree. In fact, at the end of Murder Under the Fig Tree, she sort of wangles a volunteer gig that 
mirrors one that I had, which was working at Adamir, which is an organization that works with Palestinian prisoners. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.